Why should I believe you? You ever been asked that? Why should I believe you? We've been pursuing that question for a number of weeks. This Sunday is going to be the last Sunday in this series. We're going to wrap it up as we have been talking about some of these most basic things that we believe as followers of Jesus Christ. I hope that these past weeks have given you some good answers to people who, whether through their question directly or through their conversation with you indirectly, are asking, well, why should I believe the things that you believe? Have you got good answers for those? I'm going to get some crowd uh, participation later today, so I'll let that ride. Last week we were looking at reasons to, to suggest to people that we should believe that God exists and there's reasons for that. That's not a problem for most of the United States. In fact, we learned that about 14% of people are, are the only group that don't believe in some kind of what they would call higher power. 86% of the nation would say, sure, there's some kind of higher power. That's a pretty easy sell, isn't it, to get that across to people. This morning, I climbed out of bed, and you know what? I was reminded of the power of gravity. And it is a power that is higher than me. I can't see it. I can't really describe it always. I can't escape it. I surely can't overpower it. So I have no problem from the moment that my feet hit the floor in the morning to accept that there's such a thing as a higher power than me. It's there. In fact, they're all around us. Unfortunately, that's where a lot of people stop. To them, God is just an unknowable, uncaring, un uninvolved, impersonal power of some kind. But that's just not how the scriptures explain him to us. So I want to challenge us this morning to help get God out of our thinking-only, clinical, theoretical box and into personal, real-life, real-personality God. We need to see God as He truly is. Amen? There is a hazard when we do this. There is a hazard that when you consider that God is a personal God rather than just an impersonal force, it's easy to come to a lesser view of God. Kind of like the ceiling on the Sistine Chapel where Michelangelo put God in image that we could, what, appreciate or understand? How many people have learned to think of God as a bearded old man because, after all, that's how he's painted several times there? The Bible speaks of God in human terms, in figures of speech. There's a word for that. It's called anthropomorphisms. If you can say that ten times real fast, you've gotten some kind of higher power. Anthropomorphisms simply means man-shaped. And it's a figure of speech. It, it turns up in the scriptures. It speaks of God having hands and eyes and ears and a strong arm and a heart. Well, doesn't that kind of sound like the God of the ceiling of the Sistine Chapel? When God said, let us make man in our own image, though, that is a much loftier concept than just two arms, two legs, and a face. See, scripture also speaks about God having wings and feathers, and you're going to have to picture him having smoke coming from his nostrils and fire from his mouth and him shooting arrows. You'll have to picture him as a rock and a shield and a horn and a fortress and so forth. 
So we've got to be careful when we are looking at figures of speech in Scripture and then imposing those on God in some kind of literal form to make him, shall I say, manageable to us. Why do we try to make God manageable to us? I'm glad you asked that. Here's why. The fact is, we want a personal God. If you already accept this morning that there is a personal God, imagine just for a moment what it would be like if suddenly now you couldn't pray to him. Imagine what it would be like to learn that he doesn't really even know you doesn't know your name, that, that every promise that he has made to you no longer applies, that he's just out there somewhere, some impersonal force. Who would we thank? To whom would we sing when we gather together? Where do we go with our joys or with our needs if that, if that personal God just suddenly was no longer truly a personal God? Or if you're not sure yet, if there is a personal God, imagine just for a moment, what would it be like to discover that the one who named every star also knows you by name? That the one who created millions and millions of angels also knows the number of hairs on your head or not? That the creator who set time-space history into motion has good deeds specifically lined up for you to live in, to do. Unfortunately, some people view God not as a person, but just as a power. Even though they might think of him as an individual with certain character traits, they still think of him as someone who is completely aloof, completely detached from the human experience He's the old man in the sky. He might occasionally send an angel or a bolt of lightning our direction, but other than that, he's pretty much disinterested in you and me. Wouldn't we prefer to know that there is a personal God, a God who's not just some cosmic power that started us all up here and then floated away to watch it happen? I want you to see that today. I want you to see, and if there's nothing else you walk away with from here this morning, walk away with this, that God is personal. And by that, we mean that God has a personality, and that he exercises the intellectual activities that we would expect to find in a person, but that we don't find in a, a power outlet or in a bolt of lightning. He's someone with whom you could actually have a relationship. And I want to give you some reasons this morning from Scripture and from things that we can also observe to understand that God is a personal God. First one is this, that he has communicated. An impersonal power doesn't communicate. At my home, we get gas and electricity through pipes and over wires every day. And apparently we use a lot of it because we also get a bill every month. But NICOR and ComEd have a deeper relationship with me than just sending the power. They want to hear from me. 
They want me to send them a check every month or my bank, and I know that if I want to know what's happening on their end, I've got to contact them somehow. Gas and electricity by themselves are pretty impersonal, aren't they? Those are just sources of power. But God isn't just a source of power. God has communicated to us. Last Sunday, when we were looking at all the the reasons to understand, some of the reasons to understand that God exists, you might remember the teleological argument. Remember that? The teleological argument. You're walking down the beach, and you find there in the sand a wristwatch, and you pick it up and look at it, and you see the design and the purpose behind it, and you conclude from looking at it, well, there is a designer for that. Teleological argument. Something caused this to exist, you conclude, right? Well, let's walk on down the beach some more this morning. And as you go down, you find a bottle with a message in it, the old note in a bottle. And you open it up, pull out the note, and read it, and it happens to be in a language that you can understand. And when you read that note from the bottle, what would you conclude right away? Somebody wrote a note. See, this is rocket science. Somebody wrote a note. You would conclude that there is a person somewhere on the other end who put that in the bottle. And just like a wristwatch doesn't occur from nowhere, communication doesn't come from nowhere. Language, the transfer of one mind's ideas to others doesn't come from nowhere because someone sends it in the first place and the thought on that note came from a mind. It came from a personality, not just some force like gravitation or electromagnetism. In the same way, God has issued communication to us, a message. In fact, lots of messages. Let's take a single cell from your body. You can spare one. You have around 40 trillion or so of them. All right? You can spare that. And inside of that one cell from your body, let's say it's a skin cell. Inside of that cell is the center control center. It's called a nucleus. And inside of the nucleus of that cell that we have taken from your body, there are 23 pairs of chromosomes, right? Each one of those is made up of sections of deoxyribonucleic acid, DNA. Those sections of DNA, the double helix that they form, are called genes. You have more than 20,000 genes in that cell. The same combinations, by the way, in every cell in your body. And those genes organize the nucleic acids inside of every cell's nucleus, and that tells the cell what to do, what to become. Ultimately, it determines your physical traits. Are you going to have blue eyes or brown eyes? Are you going to be short or tall? Are you going to have big feet or small feet? Will you have high cheekbones? Are you going to have attached earlobes? There is a message inside of your cell, inside of every cell, over 20,000 messages times 40 trillion cells. That's a lot of messages. Good thing you're not getting billed for those. And that is another indicator about this God. 
A message doesn't get there on its own. There is a messenger. There is someone sending the message. When there's a message, there is a source. Every cell of your body is a walking library of messages. Where does that communication come from? Communication doesn't come from nowhere. God has communicated. He also has a name. That's a good reason to understand that he is a personality, not just a power. One of the first things that you try to learn about a person is his or her name, right? It's also, unfortunately, one of the first things you forget about a person. Right after they tell you, whoop, it's gone. I'm going to give you a chance to fix that this morning. I want you to take a minute right here in person. Find somebody whose name you don't know or have forgotten. And it is name amnesty day. All right? You got 60 seconds. Get up. Let's get some names. If you're online this morning and you see someone else is online, type in the comment section a hello to somebody that you don't know personally who's online. Otherwise, boy, you're going to have a hard time doing this from your seats. Uh, go ahead and mill around. Pick up a name. This is your chance to admit it. Hey, I slipped your name this morning. All right? Five seconds. All right, very good. Now I hope, yep, someone said it. Say it three times. Use that name three times. Uh, before you get away today, catch that person again and say, hey, fill in the blank with a name. I still remember. All right, once in a while we need to do that. So this morning I want to give you a chance to do that and to remind you and to remind me out loud together that your name is very important to you, isn't it? When somebody gets your name wrong, that kind of bothers you, doesn't it? I don't think he's watching online this morning, but my next door neighbor misheard my name or mixed it up sometime way back in the past and calls me by the wrong name every time he sees me. And I don't have the heart to fix it anymore. I'm just Stu. That's, all, that's, that's who I am. Your name matters to you. It's important to you. Because it's not just something that people call you. Your name is you, isn't it? It really is important to you. And even when you give something a name, that is a way of saying about a material thing that it has some special meaning to you. My brother Ken, when he was in Bible college, had an old brown 1970 Pontiac Safari station wagon. It was a boat. And he named it Necreta. Necreta, that is Greek, by the way. He was in Bible college. That's Greek for chariot of the dead. And <laughs> a few years later, when Ken got a different car, and it was a nicer car, and it was a nice shiny Chevy, he named that car a Hebrew name, Hephzibah. And Hephzibah means my joy is in her. So he kind of made up for that. Those cars weren't just things, or they were just things, but when he named them, it meant that they were more than just a general concept or force. They were a part of his life, part of his world, and so he named them. Well, God has a name. 
God has a name. In fact, God has a personal name that he revealed to Moses when Moses asked, what is the name I should say that you are of you who are sending me? He gave him his personal name. And then there are several other titles also that are given to God throughout the scriptures. And I've got just a few of them that we're going to toss up on the screen this morning and online for people to see, like the name Adonai, which means Lord, or El Berith, God of the covenant, Shephat, Judge, El Elyon, most high God, El Olam, eternal God, Kadosh Israel, the Holy One of Israel, El Shaddai, you've heard that, remember the song from years ago, all-powerful God. These are names and titles. They're not just descriptions of some impersonal power or force. These are names that tell us that God is a divine person, and they tell us about him, what he is like. Exodus 15.3 says, the Lord is a man of war. The Lord is his name. God has a name. You don't name impersonal forces. I note this too, that God demonstrates emotions. <clears throat> this tells me something about God. We might say, like yesterday, there was an angry storm, or that the sea today is calm, or that was a vicious wind. But when we say those things, we don't really mean, do we, that forces of nature have personality. God shows emotions. And it's part of the mystery of God to me, because it seems like any mention of God having emotions in Scripture always is in the context of his relationship with us. God's emotions have to do with his relationship with mankind, whom he created. Genesis 6.6 6 says, The Lord regretted that he had made man on the earth. It grieved him to his heart. This is God. Isaiah 63.9, In all their affliction, he was afflicted. And the angel of his presence saved them in his love and in his pity. He redeemed them. Judges 10.16 says that God became impatient over the misery of Israel. Joel 2.18, the Lord became jealous for his land and had pity on his people. Paul says in Ephesians 4.30, do not what? Do not, do not grieve the Holy Spirit of God. Now, these are emotions that God says he has. And if you've got all this figured out, great. I still find it a mysterious thing. That God created us out of nothing, and in the process of doing that, he gave to you and to me the ability to choose or reject him. It is as though God has bound himself to being emotionally involved with us. And it costs him something. I suppose the choice to become a parent is probably one of the best ways to explain this. Now, we're going to be celebrating moms next Sunday. Happy Mother's Day a week early, moms. Whatever possesses a woman to want to have to get up all hours of the night, to triple your laundry load, to never have a clean house, to never eat a hot meal again for the next 30 years, and to replace all of your nice decorations and furniture at home with scribbled drawings that you stick on the refrigerator. It's that decision 
to emotionally tie yourself to another person who depends on you. Isn't that what that is? And God demonstrates that that is the kind of relationship that he has with mankind. He has bound himself with covenants and with promises that he chose to make. Somehow in the process of that, he sets forward impatience, jealousy, pity, even grief. Does that sound like an impersonal force to you? That's God in whose image we have been created. Which brings us to another point. God is a personal God because he's made us like him. We're different from all the rest of creation, aren't we? Because God, after making everything else, then said, let us make man in our image. And the thing that he made us out of isn't so unique. Paul said in 1 Corinthians 15, the first man was from the earth, a man of dust. And that's the same dust that God used, by the way, to create the land animals. But when it came time to have that first man, Adam, become a living being, God breathed his breath of life into him. That sounds rather personally involved in our experience, doesn't it? He made us in his image. When you're someone who understands God to be that kind of a God, and you understand that he invites us to have a personal relationship with him, well, then you get stories like, oh, to choose one this morning, that of King Hezekiah in 2 Kings chapter 19. The armies of the Assyrian king, Sennacherib, were surrounding Jerusalem, and the plan was to cut them off, to starve them into surrender. They had already stomped all over other nations around them. And to add to it, they waged a propaganda war. They sent a letter to King Hezekiah warning him of what was going to happen if he didn't just surrender, warning him how foolish it would be to count on his God while all the other nations' gods were of no help to them. But just as a letter addressed to the king was intended to be personally disheartening, Hezekiah took action to the personal God who personally cares about his people. Verse 14, it says, Hezekiah received the letter from the hand of the messengers and read it. Hezekiah went up to the house of the Lord, spread it before the Lord. Hezekiah prayed before the Lord and said, O Lord, the God of Israel, enthroned above the cherubim, you are the God, you alone, of all the kingdoms of the earth. You have made heaven and earth. Incline your ear, O Lord, and hear. Open your eyes, O Lord, and see and hear the words of Sennacherib, which he has sent to mock the living God. Can you picture this in your mind? Hezekiah spreading this letter out in front of God and saying, God, look at this. Look what they say. And that night, in answer to King Hezekiah's prayer, one angel of the Lord entered the camp of the Assyrians and struck down 185,000 soldiers. 
And that story is a reminder that God sees us and understands what we need. No impersonal force does that. This is the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. This is the God who is near to the brokenhearted. This, by the way, is the God who is at the site, uh, the side of the Berg family down in Tennessee today. The personal God. And this is also the God who makes himself more knowable and understandable through his son, Jesus Christ. Paul in Colossians 2 says, See to it that no one takes you captive by philosophy and empty deceit according to human tradition, according to the elemental spirits of the world, and not according to Christ. For in him the whole fullness of deity dwells bodily. We got some weather yesterday. You know, one night during a heavy thunderstorm, there was a little guy in his room, scared, yelled out to his dad, Daddy, I'm scared. And his dad, who was already in bed, wasn't real anxious to have to get up. So instead of getting up, he just waxed theological and from his bedroom yelled, Don't be afraid, son. God loves you. He'll take good care of you. And after a quiet pause and then another clap of thunder, the little boy said, I know that God loves me, but right now I need somebody with skin on him. <laughs> Jesus is God with skin on him. John 1.14 says that Jesus became flesh and he tented among us. He was here in a tent of flesh and lived among us. And that's the ultimate reason to understand that God is a person and not just a force. He cares about us. He draws us close to him. And that seems to be why he created us in the first place. He showed love for all of mankind by sending this Jesus into the world. Peter says, we are to be casting all your anxieties on him because, why? He cares for you. Only a person cares. And that's what I want us to remember about knowing the personal God today. He cares for you. By the way, that's no matter what you have done, no matter what you have failed to do, there is this personal God who still wants you to live with him forever. So let's go back to that bottle that you found on the beach. Can we do that? The one with the note in it? And just suppose that in 1979, a couple named John and Dorothy Peckham are on a Christmas cruise in Hawaii. And on a whim, suppose they wrote a couple of notes and put them into empty champagne bottles, put those notes there with a dollar included with each one, inviting whoever found that message to write back to them and tell them that they had found it, and that they kept those bottles and tossed them into the ocean. Suppose they did that, and then suppose four years later, on his 70th birthday, Mr. Peckham receives a letter from Hua Van Nguyen. I know I'm butchering his name, bear with me. A former soldier in the Vietnamese army. 
Claw had found this bottle floating off the coast of Thailand. It had drifted, they estimated, about 9,000 miles in those four years. And Hua was there attempting to escape after four and a half years of imprisonment by the communists. He and his family and his brother were on a rickety raft. They had been going three days without drinking water, fearing that their baby would die when they found this bottle. And they wrote back and The Peckhams and Hua began to exchange notes, and Hua asked if there was any way that the Peckhams could help them move to the United States. Well, the Peckhams began to work with U.S. immigration to make it happen, and it did. And those two families met in person for the very first time one day in Los Angeles when the Van Nguyen family landed at the airport and where Hua said he was the most lucky man in the world and that that bottle had been their answered prayers for freedom. True story. You need to understand this morning that God has communicated to you. And the message that he sent such a long distance through the person of Jesus Christ That message is the beginning of your freedom, my freedom. He has communicated to you. For too many people, there's a note put in a bottle, this message of hope that ultimately could lead to life in what is otherwise a hopeless situation. And unfortunately, the message is still sitting there, waiting for you to take it in, waiting for you to receive it. God sent the message. I'm so thankful this morning that somebody helped me realize that message is worth reading. That the message was sent for me. And that I could know a Savior personally who knows me, who wants me. Most of you here this morning I know have have had that experience in your life already. You understand it. You need to be reminded of it today. This personal God loves you. And then there are still some today who need to read the message, need to look at it. You know, in just a moment, we're going to have a time for you to consider committing your life back to the one who created it in the first place. And maybe today will be the day that you make the decision to turn your will over to him, to turn your life over to him like he deserves, like he longs for with you. If you're online and that's a decision that you're thinking about, we're so glad that you're here this morning. And we hope that we'll have an opportunity to talk more with you about your relationship with Jesus. Please contact us, cccrockford.org forward slash connect. That'll get you to us. Or type in a, a greeting right now online and just say hello, that this is something you want to talk about. If you're here in person and that's something you need to do, here, uh, after we sing the song, I'm going to be right down front. Would you please just come talk to me? This is the time, the place to do that, to make decisions today that are going to honor God. Let's stand up together. We're going to pray as we get ready to sing a song together. Father, we thank you for uh, the truth that you are the great God that is described to us in Scripture, not just some impersonal force 
but the one of whom it says, uh, our very names are inscribed on your hands. You know us and long for us to know you. God, it is still a mystery to me that your heart, your inner self somehow is affected by us, by your choosing. Thank you for making us valuable by telling us that, Lord, by making it clear that we matter, every person. And I pray today that there will be somebody realizing this, uh, maybe this spark of hope for the very first time rising up inside of them as they understand their life matters, matters to the one who created it all. Uh, Father, please now be honored by our choices, our decisions, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.